Welcome back to the Flat Out RC podcast, a podcast where we talk all things radio control flight. We're talking helis, planes and drones. My name is Andrew Sill coming to you from the land down under in Melbourne, Australia. COVID free down here in Victoria. We went from severe lockdowns to not much happening, which is great to see. And Australia, you're doing a really good job as far as combating the COVID situation. Now, testament to that is that our flying clubs are open around the country and that's a good good gauge as far as I'm concerned whether we can get out there for a fly or not. Uh, big show coming up. Uh, we've got Phil Crandon joining me. Phil Crandon from New South Wales, a, a renowned scale modeler, both here. has also been over to the US to the Top Gun event. So stay tuned for a great chat with Phil. Now, before we get to Phil, let's take a look at what's been happening around the traps. What has been happening around the traps? Well, uh, the way that I see it is we're starting to wind down to the end of the year. Only only a few weeks to go, really, until it's Christmas time, Christmas break. And actually, before I get to that, uh, the Flat Out RC podcast will take a break throughout January. Uh, And that sort of brings me to what's been happening around the world this time of year and a lot of businesses and how that relates to aero modeling and something I just want to pose a question to all of you and what I'm talking about is business planning everyone is planning what they're going to do in 2021 and I'm always thinking about what I'm going to do with Flat Out RC and with the podcast and and uh, toying with some different ideas of uh, different kinds of content and and ways to do it I've had a really good year of doing 30 something podcasts in a row from uh, zero to 36 or 37 or something, whatever we'll end up doing for the entire year. Uh, but I've had a really good year uh, and learned a lot through the through the experience of producing the podcast. But what I want you to think about is what would you like to see happen in the aero modeling scene in the next 12 months? Well, one, we know that we want to see more events back up and running, people back at the fields uh, in hopefully, touch wood, a COVID-free environment next year. Uh, vaccine will come out and will hopefully bring everything under control again. But personally, I'd love to see events. I'd love to see uh, a resurgence in aero modeling that will come as a result of some action. And by that, I mean promotion of the hobby to a new audience. Uh, just as some, of our, some of the young kids that we uh, had on the, um, on the podcast a few episodes ago uh, mentioned advertising to a new audience and come try days so clubs getting involved in in spruiking the hobby to, to boost our numbers up and you might be wondering why would you want to boost the numbers up and there are there is a school of thought out there is that you know why do you need to worry about boosting the numbers well I'll tell you why if you of that mindset understand what a lack of numbers does to the whole model flying community one uh, reduction in in choice would that be the number of flying clubs that are around and viable so where you can fly, the the models that you can actually purchase, because remember that we only get that opportunity when people invest their money to bring the models in. Uh, less shops, so less availability of product. So everything becomes harder and harder for, to keep things alive. And you know, some people that may be aging and don't think that they're going to be living for the next 30 years which it happens to all of us. I'm not having a go at anybody. It's just we all get old. But 
often they can get a mindset that they don't care about the next generation and what's happening. And I'm sure that uh, when uh, we were all younger, that we were hoping that the generation above us were looking out for our interests as well, not just selfish interests. And I'm a big believer of playing our part to keep things alive. So it's going to be, I think the next few years is really going to be telling uh, to see whether we can we can start to boost some numbers up. And, and I'm hopeful of it. I just think that uh, our associations, our flying clubs need to work together to try to achieve that, that uh, we need to stop this preaching to the converted attitude that, that a lot of the associations have because it's easy to do that. Just you know, go and have a look at some of the social media activity that you see that's coming from flying clubs or associations and it's just regurgitating other people's content with nothing new and it's just another outlet for another photograph. Go to Flat Out RC if you want to see photographs. <laughs> I've got plenty of photographs. You know, I've taken more than most would and, and, and you know, Instagram I've had almost daily will have a photo, a new photo and, and they're all photos that I've taken. So it, I'm hoping that we can just get back to, to promotion to a new audience with some come try days that people can touch and feel it as well. And I reckon that'd be a great way to go. So that is my hope uh, for 2021 and 2022 as well. Personally, I hope that next year is a year full of a lot of flying. I can't wait to visit some events. I think many of us are in that same boat just to meet some different people, fly some different aircraft. So business planning, as they say, is alive and well and I will be doing that. Now, if anybody's got any thoughts as to what they'd like to hear on the podcast, just send me a message. Jump onto the Flat Out RC Facebook page if you want. If you're on Facebook and send me a message, go to the Flat Out RC uh, website at uh, flatoutrc.com.au and just send me send me any thoughts you've got as far as guests you'd like to hear from or content that you'd like to hear and I'll see what I can do. I will admit it's getting harder to get guests on because... We've already covered a lot, and some of them I will get back in 2021 to have a chat because they've always got something relevant to say, you know, likes of Martin Pickering and Ali Machinchi and some of these people just to see what, what they're up to. But if there's any, any other thoughts that you've got as to what I can do for you, then please yell out. I'd love to hear. So keep on thinking. 2021 is just around the corner. guest time and it's phil crandon is my special guest this week now phil hails from lismore up in new south wales and i got put on to phil by some other guests who who mentioned the, um, his name to me and when i delved a little deeper and had a look at uh, the man phil crandon well he's actually very involved in scale modeling and he does an excellent job at it and particularly warbirds is, is one of his uh passions as he will explain, and you know, he, he's he's been a very committed modeler for a long part of his life, but uh, also now working on some amazing, amazing models that are are very very realistic. And he'll also talk about how he went to the Top Gun exhibition with one of his uh, models that he's very well known from, a Stuka. Uh, I bet he'll tell us all that. So, over to my chat with Scar Modeler Extraordinaire Phil Grandin. Well, the Flat Out RC podcast is moving back to New South Wales, this time northern New South Wales, and joining me on the line is Phil Crandon. Phil, thanks for joining me. You're welcome, Andrew. Thanks very much for having me. 
Well, as I mentioned to you off air, your name keeps on popping up. People keep on saying, "Oh, you should get Phil Crandon on onto the uh, the podcast." Your mate uh, Peter Goff, he he, uh, he mentioned you and a few others, and I thought, well, uh, I'll, I'm always looking for guests from all around Australia, and so I'm really happy to have someone from representing Northern New South Wales. Now, Phil, how did you get your start in the hobby? Because you, you've been around for a long time. Yep, um, Andrew, this hobby for me started literally back at primary school days um, and you know my initial my initial passion for everything with aeroplanes you got to remember I'm sort of the tail end of the baby booming generation so when I was a 10 and 12 year old um, and even slightly younger the you know second world war had sort of ended 10 12 years before that but aeroplanes you know and military stuff was still very much uh, thing both my father and my uncle served and and uh, and you know they always had war stories to tell and all that sort of stuff. So that's sort of where it started. But it started initially for me with small plastic models um, at primary school, and that was a you know, regular uh, Christmas and birthday gift. And I just loved assembling those. And um, I guess it all sort of began at that particular point. Um, to get into the the flying models, that probably started for me late primary school um, and early high school times. Um, but I was very fortunate to. Uh, have whilst my father was very much a good um, uh, woodworker and craftsman and had a, a reasonable workshop, um, my brother uh, David, who's uh, the eldest in the family, and I'm the youngest. So David's now in his mid seventies. Um, David actually was on in the early days, uh, very much into control line and free flight, and then the very earliest in Australia, or the very earliest of radio control. Um, so I was that annoying little brother, and uh, he was. Uh, he was shooing me out of the workshop because I used to touch everything, and um, you know, always wanted the glue and the glue bottle and the uh, this is the balsa. But uh, David started off uh, with um, seeing, you know, literally single channel channel what they used to call escarpment uh, gear, which uh, um, was literally full right, full left, etc. And we, you know, I think, from memory, you only had single channel to start with, and then a, a single channel with a, a throttle control, which was either high motor or low motor. Um, and in fact, I moved on to when you know my earliest radio control model was um, using his old gear. That when he'd finally gone and bought a, a a reed set or something like that, I got the chance to use the escapement stuff, which was um, uh, fairly fairly short lived. <laughs> yeah, I, I always am fascinated about those single channel uh, models. And a few podcast episodes ago, I, I had John Lamont, who, who's an older guy, who was yep. there in the early days of the radio control movement, and. He actually said, look, we were basically flying free flight models and yep. adding a rudder into it. So the planes would generally yep. fly themselves. And I'd never thought of it that way. I never thought that they'd been trimmed to it within an inch of their life that they could almost fly themselves. But it was just the yep. rudder was there to give it a bit of direction. But he'd say, you know, that every landing was a dead stick landing. You had to wait for the fuel to run out before you can get it on yes. the ground. And I thought, oh, you know, how, how good do we have it nowadays with the gear that we've got? It's just so much easier. But Absolutely. I still... I, it, I look back at that, even though I wasn't around in those days, I look back fondly and think, imagine what it was like, um, you know, if building the models and then flying them. Yeah, it was a lot of fun, Andrew, but it's, it, you know, we, we affectionately referred to it as radio interruption, not radio control. <laughs> yeah. And, and um, yeah, you, you effectively built, you know, you built your models so that they would literally fly hands off and therefore everything had too much dihedral in it and all that sort of stuff from the early... From a hangover from the free flight days, but we thought it was cool. You know, it was it was 
it was cutting edge in those days. So it was, um, you know, we never thought about it as being too hard or uh, annoying or anything like that. It was just part of what the passion was. Yeah, I've got so many questions that are now coming up into my mind. You know about that that early days for you. Where, where were you flying? Like, were you going to the local field or something like that? Yeah, absolutely. I, I grew up in in a part of Lismore, and I, I still live in just outside Lismore these days. But I grew up in a, a residential area in Lismore. We were fortunate to have a number of soccer and um, um, cricket type fields around, and uh, one of those was a double uh, in in East Lismore was a, a double sized football field, uh, which is where we. A lot of my early flying sort of started, and, and my brother David, you know, went on once I uh, had my first proportional radio. He's he then, you know, he'd already had one himself. Um, I worked a, a school holiday job and in early high school and bought my first two channel radio, and uh, he then taught me to, to fly um, using that particular uh, radio down at, at um, a place called Wade Park in East Lismore, and it was literally two two football fields, but it was surrounded by sort of farming land. There was houses on one side of it, but on the other side was farming land. So it was just a big open sporting field, and you could, you know, they council mowed it, so it was good to take off and land on. Yeah. yeah. The when it came to the actual models that you were flying, were they were you scratch building or were you buying kits? Uh, no, scratch building was very much my uh, uh, my. You know, I just, you know, to be honest with you, we couldn't afford kits. Kits were just really. You know, quite expensive back in those days. Um, but I look back now and um, I spent a lot of time. My dad was a draftsman by trade. So he would, um, he actually had a, a drafting board set up um, at our home. And um, when he wasn't at the drafting board, I'd pull all his plans off the board and put my own on. Mm. <laughs> and in those days, in the, in the earliest days when I was a, a teenager, most of the modeling magazines would actually print an A4 or a, you know, a magazine size uh, copy of plans that were the unbuilding article in a particular magazine. So I would actually take those plans and literally scale them up to full size to the to the full size model yeah. um, from the plan in the magazine. And then Dad had the um, had the uh, ink pens and everything, so I, I'd literally ink it all in, and then he'd take it to uh, his office and put it through this thing and turn it into my, my plan of it uh, that I'd actually oh, awesome. reproduce myself. So, yeah, that was the earliest days. And I'm thinking of a, um, and a thing called an Aronka Champion was a, probably one of the early, early ones I did like that. Um, but there were other ones. There were, there were small, you know, a meter and a half gliders. And, um, I remember a small, very easy built thing with an 09 in the front of it called a Quickie, which was like a training pylon racer. Um, and they were all quite simple, but you know, you just I just um, scaled them up and uh, drew my own plans, so to speak, at that stage. But yeah, generally speaking, all my stuff was done from. It wasn't until, um, you know, probably late teenage years that I afforded to buy a, a kit of any description. But um, yeah, they were just too expensive in the early days. It's amazing how the times have changed. Really, when you think about the effort that you had to go to to just build a model plane. And yeah. and I think that crosses other other areas of our lives. You know, I've got young kids, and you know, I'm I'm 47 years of age. So, you know, I was a young sort of kid through the 80s, and you know, we had kits and Aeroflight kits and things like that that were relatively affordable. Uh, and nowadays, you fast forward, and uh, my kids aren't interested in making any kind of effort like that. And I dare say that most kids aren't effort uh, interested in making 
an effort like you, you went to just to to build you know a, a model plane but um i don't know i think that uh, i think we've lost something in that that tenacity that you had to have to get to the end project kind of thing absolutely andrew i think it all harps back to people's you know desire to to do something that's slightly different um and you know unfortunately the desire for a young you know for young people these days is you know and obviously i I won't go on about video games and stuff like that because you know i don't mind a video game myself from time to time but the you know the, the whole concept of building something yourself is a completely separate piece of the hobby flying is one thing building is a completely different other thing so yeah there's as far as i'm concerned people who don't build are simply missing out on one of the wonderful parts of the hobby well, i think it's it, it is i always say that feeling that when you when you see that finished model and you just stand back and look at it and the pride that you have that you put this thing together and yep. I, I walk around the house and i say to my wife look at this plane how good is it and she's like yeah and it's just yep. like the other one you've got isn't it? i said no no but look, this one this one is great and, and it's like oh. you're it's like the newborn baby that you just brought home look at it it's so good and uh but um yeah and it, it, that feeling is is just it's it's a it's a hard one to come by and it only comes after making considerable effort and uh you know i was you know, I've got to actually. I've got a question. I'm going to touch. Actually, I'm going to ask you this question now, because I have got this written down. It takes a bit of time to build a model, and we're going to talk about one of your your great models uh, shortly. But how do you stay motivated during that build process? Because it's not as if you know you you build the model overnight and the next day you go and fly it. So, what keeps you motivated? Um, that's a really good question. Though the I think one of the things that I do initially is I invest quite a bit of time in actually accumulating information about an aeroplane. Um, because when I do sort of get my mind set, I've, I've got, you know, in my head, and most, most scale guys will tell you this, in, inside your head, you keep a list of aeroplanes that you hope you will build one day. Um, and one, I've sort of learned a long time ago um, that if you can't actually visualize it in your head, you're never going to do it. That's so true. I keep sort of thinking about the end result. I'll be, I remember, I'm, I'm fortunate that I'm not working any longer, but I remember when I was driving, you know, I'd be driving somewhere, going to a meeting, and I'd be thinking and actually imagining the aeroplane, you know, up on its legs, rolling down the runway and just about to lift off. And I could actually sort of visualize the whole thing. I think that's probably what keeps me going. So when I see a piece, um, you know, when I start to build something, I've already, I can see the finished products. I just got to keep doing the slaving away at it. But I get pretty excited when I get started. And as my wife will tell you that, um, you know, she pretty much should roll the bed into the workshop sometimes. <laughs> <laughs> I'll be sleeping here, but, uh, uh, you know, at the detriment of our garden and a few other things that we're supposed to do. But, um, and that's, I don't know, I really don't know how to answer it, but one of the things I do, like I said, is I like to accumulate a lot of information. So I've read a lot about the aeroplane. I kind of I've researched and tried to find accurate information about it as much as I can. And once I've got all that together, I've sort of spent so much time looking at all of these pictures, etc. I just am determined at that point to keep going. Um, and and I, you do get faster at it as you get older, I think. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, I think it, I find that, 
when it comes to building, you've got to have a fair bit of confidence in your abilities because if sometimes I will second guess my abilities and that yep. slows me down because I'm yep. just cautious about doing something. But every time I do it, it turns out okay. It's just having that that confidence that I suppose will build up over time the more and more you build. But what, what's, sure. what's interesting is I'm, I'm very interested into the, into the psychology of we aero modelers and dating back to the days when I had a little hobby business selling some model airplanes and people used to turn up and buy planes and they'd see my race car sitting in the corner of the warehouse and they'd always ask a question and we'd start talking about their other interests in life and, and there was this similarity and the similarity was that we were all tinkerers. We were all interested in gaining knowledge about a particular thing and we enjoyed the research process and that it wasn't as if we were we wanted something tomorrow. We were willing to put in the effort to get to this end result. And the word that you use is that you could visualize the end result. And as I mentioned in previous podcasts with uh, Dennis Travisaros, how we have very, very vivid imaginations, that we have that ability to see the end result and fall in love with that end result. So we put in the effort to get to that point. That's why Absolutely. there's always another model that we want because we go, imagine if I have that, which is the most irrational thought when you think about it because how many models do we actually need? But we fall in love with this concept and it's so hard to explain to people that don't get it on that wavelength because they'll yep. just say, well, why do you need another plane? It's like, well, you don't understand. It's it's like- Yeah, well, that's my comment earlier about it's, it's you know, flying is one thing, building is another. So what you're referring to is the building and the imagination process of owning something that no... And particularly, and I know there's a lot of guys in the scale world um, like me, I like to try and I like to think about and build something that no one else is, or few there, and there's, no, there's not that many of them around or they're not mass produced in large numbers. So that's, you know, yeah, I'm hearing what you're saying. It's so, uh, yeah. but it is, it's a, uh, it, it is a real passion. It is, um, you know, I'm totally absorbed by it these days. It really is. Um, I worked hard to retire early and, and uh, now I indulge my passion uh, literally on a daily basis. Well, that is that is everyone's dream, really, I mm -hmm. think, to be able to do that. And well, It's interesting you said um, building something that may not have been built before, something that's different, I think is a really big advantage or a contribution that the scale community, that, when I'm talking about the hardcore scalers, that yep. really um, contribute. Because I find that when you look at the commercial side, Everyone's copying each other. Every brand's going to build a Piper Cub, and you know yep. because they know that it sells. And uh, talking to Ali Machinchi, who was from Horizon Hobby, who's over in the US, he's, he's telling me about the corporate side of it. It's in one of the, you know if you want to listen to it, it's in one of the old um, flat out RC episodes. Yep. And he talked about how the company he'll have come up with an idea, and the company says, "Well, who's going to buy it? Like, how many we're we going to sell?" And so they know that uh, it's a no brainer to build a Piper Cub, and people are going to sell it, uh, buy it build something that's a little bit different, it's a really risky punt. And so, for example, he's just they've just released a, a giant-scale OV-10 military aircraft that you know, yep. flew in the Vietnam War, and yep. that is a punt. That He had to convince the different levels of management that this was a good investment because they do have to spend a lot of money to actually get to the point to just make the product. And he had to convince them that this would be a good move because... It's not a a yak, an extra carb, uh, you know, a Cessna, the stuff that we know. And and I think that the hobby can become a bit mundane when you go to the flying field and everybody's got a pipe of carb. And yep. it's people like yourself and the other scale guys, like Pete Goff's, uh, it's a Wirraway that he's built it, isn't it? Mm. Yes. Oh, that it is, is just yep. 
It is a work of art. It is. Yeah, it is. You look at that, and that just inspires you to want to do something. Well, the other thing that you know, when I see Goffy's work, um, like the amount of effort that he's that he's put into that particular model is simply outstanding, and the yeah. standard that it's at is is a, is truly amazing. But yeah. it also it heartens guys like me because you think you know, I sort of you know I, I'm of that generation where sort of oh, you know there's not too many of us that are left that are doing this stuff. But there is a, a good bunch of guys coming along that are truly are you know really really good at it, and um, you know. And, Anthony Ogle and, and um, uh, Craig Bryson and Goffey and those guys, you know, they're all producing really good quality aeroplanes. Um, and and some of the older guys, I don't, you know, I certainly know of the guys in Victoria, but I don't know them personally, unfortunately. But um, you know, the stuff that they've done and, and their, their uh, achievements at world championships levels, a level is is truly outstanding. And um, yeah, so I think scale modelling is alive and well in Australia. And in fact, it, I go up. I'm I'm an you know, roughly two and a bit hours south of Brisbane, and I've got a daughter who lives up there, so I always try to take a model with me if I go up to visit. And so um, I know a few of the guys at different clubs up there. Scale is very much alive and well in, in uh, southeast Queensland, I can assure you. And uh, and there's some really, really excellent builders up there. I think there are. You've got to be – I think when it comes to that level of scale building, you've got to be exceptionally motivated and yep. um, and be willing to, to, to make that sacrifice in time. You know, I'm 47. I've got my own business. I've got a young family. I've got a yep. lot on my plate that has to take priority. And yep. so for me to go and build, uh, you know, is, is more of a challenge because there's only so many hours in the day that I can commit to doing it. And because I don't have that time, that means any project's going to take years. So that's even harder to maintain the motivation because, some days it feels like you're not getting anywhere, you know. Um, yeah. But but it, it, I do believe that it's not as bad as what a lot of people think. I think there are some really, really great scar modelers. Like I had a couple of young guys on my podcast a few weeks ago and one of them is a scale guy. He's a scale warbird guy. He's, he's 17 and he's a scale, scale warbird guy that wants to go to the next world champs. Um, you know, I don't know if it's a junior category or something like that. And he loves warbirds and he loves the whole scale thing. And he's lucky that he's got some good mentors around him, you know, and we've got that, that community like David Laws of the world and Greg Lepps who, you know, all the yep. world champs and all that that are at the same club that can mentor him and, and, and coach him along. But you have to be, you have to have that extreme passion to build some of the stuff that, uh, that you've been involved in, which brings yeah. me and, to. And Andrew, can I just jump in? You, you also need to make the time. This whole thing about I don't have time to do it. I've, I know where you've been. I've been there too. I've raised and educated children. I've run my own business, etc. You, you know, everyone has the same thing. But I can certainly remember uh, vividly when our kids were, you know, primary and, and early high school and stuff like that, where I wouldn't get to the workshop till half past eight, quarter nine at night, and still be there close to midnight. Yeah. And you know, you just get up and go to work the next day, and just keep doing it because if you've got enough of a passion, you'll make it happen. And that's that's that visualization thing I spoke on. So if you really want it bad enough, you do what's necessary to make it happen. And that's what, to me, is is you know, it's 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 now way too easy to say, you know, I can have a P forty seven if I want one, and I just go, you know, I literally click online and it'll be here in five days. But I might spend four days putting it together, um, but you know, then I can go fly it, and I've got a P forty seven. Unfortunately, the, you know, it's that's too easy now. <laughs> but that just wasn't around when I was, you know, even you know, if you go back even fifteen years ago, that really wasn't around. 
at that time. Um, now it's everywhere. Yeah, it is. It, it is a lot easier nowadays. But that was, I think, the way that I look at it is that that was a response to the challenge that it does take a fair bit of effort to go and make a, a mm. model. So the, the the businesses sit there and go, well, how do we solve the problem? Oh, well, let's build, yeah. let's pre-build something. And it'll be interesting yeah. to see where it goes. I really think that we're going to go through a period of time where a lot of these ARFs are going to become more expensive. Uh, that, yeah. you know, you look at what's happening in China, the cost of bolts is going up. It's hard for them to find workers, you know, because I know some of the manufacturers, like that it's hard for them to try to find workers that want to work in dusty environments like with Bolsa. Uh, that the 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 wages in China is rising because as China makes more money, things are going to become more expensive. So, I think that you know, and our exchange rate is terrible at the moment with the US dollar, which has increased. You know, the the price of the the kits and stuff. So it could end up in a situation where we do come back to you know, a bit more building. And and I, you know what I I and I've talked about this before in the podcast is the resurgence of kit building where and buying plans and building from you know uh, a partial kit uh kind of thing these services now where you order your uh you order your um your plans and you then you order your short kit and they'll cut it for you on demand then send you out the bolsa at least you know you're not cutting it but mm. i see a lot of that happening especially amongst sort of people that have just retired that love the hobby uh mm. you know there's a guy that's been on on the podcast tim dehan and and he absolutely loves that, and he he still considers him to be he considers himself to be a newcomer to the yep. hobby, being involved for probably eight years. But that's all he wants to do. He loves building, you know, yep. the, the model planes, and it's not just about getting the model to a finished position. It's almost like he's going to continue to work on that plane to keep on improving it. And that's what we see some of the scale guys down in Victoria. You know, the David Laws of the world that has these beautiful pits. That he's constantly working on it to improve aspects of it to get it more scale like, and yeah. and I think that's the good thing about scales. You're never going to get bored with your aeroplane. You know, there's always something else to fix. David is an excellent example of somebody who who has been rewarded for his continued efforts. Yeah. You know, it's um, it, so yeah, he he knows, he knows exactly what he he needs to do, and he knows how to visualize it and make it happen. Yeah, he does, and and that's a massive forte that he's got and that strength that he's got. Absolutely. Now, I want to talk a bit about one of your major models that you know, in doing some research on you, Phil, it just kept on coming up. There were different articles written about, it, and that's your Stuka. Um, yep. Tell me a bit about that model from you know how how it came about to the end result. Okay. Um, Originally, it was and the, the whole sort of gestation period was probably up in 40 years ago, I guess. But uh, it was one of the, as I recall, it was one of the earliest plastic models I ever built. Um, and it just intrigued me, the shape of it and all that sort of thing. The, the whole idea of it, you know, vertically diving down and the sirens and all that sort of stuff. The whole just thing about the, the, the Stuka just, um, um, you know, just intrigued me and it was an aeroplane I just loved the look of and the shape of etc so um, that's sort of you know where it all started and I thought oh one day you know I, I really would like to do this and so sure enough once you know once I started work I was like everybody else I'd, I'd buy things from time to time thinking oh you know one day I'll build this and so I bought a Zeroli uh, Stuka plan and I bought the cowl and the wheel pants and all that sort of stuff and the, the spinner and I thought, hey, you know, you know, okay. and, and it sat in, you know, it sat in the roof you know, in my storage area in the roof for <laughs> ten or twelve or fourteen years or whatever it was, and never got built, of course. And uh, 
And one day I just made you know, the decision that I would like to uh, to do this and, and get on with it. I was, um, one of the things I was motivated that I wanted to potentially go to Top Gun one day um, in the States. That was all, or has always been a dream of mine. And that's sort of when I got serious about the Stuka. Um, and that's, you know, the sort of the beginnings of where it all started. Um, it was a reasonably long project from the start date um, because I was still working at the time. So I started building the thing and I got partially into the building process. Um, and I always start on wings because I dislike wings the most. <laughs> so I get the bits I don't like done. The bits I don't like to build, I usually do first. Um, so uh, that way I'm excited to get through that and get to the things I do like building. Um, but knowing where I wanted to get to, even though I really hadn't made any serious plans about it, I sort of thought, well, I might sort of try to do the ultimate job on this one or the best I possibly can. And we'll see how it sort of turns off, how it turns out at the end. So the reality was I started, but as soon as I started, I realized how woefully inaccurate the actual plan was. Um, and if you put the, my finished Stuka against anyone that's built straight off a, a plan, you'll see immediately that they don't look the same at all. Um, and that was frustrating because it actually meant that I lost the wing sections and sorry, the wing uh, platform shape. Uh, in the Zeroli kit and the stabiliser are actually quite accurate. The whole fuselage in cross-section and in plan view are all completely inaccurate. Um, and as, as my good friend Greg Tracy in Sydney reminded me, is, you know, that, that Nick was designing aeroplanes for a market back in the 80s where everybody had a Zenoa G62 and big fat servos and you know, etc. So he designed things with longer noses and shorter tails and all sorts of things to make them easier to balance and etc. And the big put the cowl in the wrong place doesn't really matter that much, but it covers up the G62 um, cylinder head, etc. So you know, I had to literally go back and redo the drawings um, or you know, on that particular airplane. But as that was a bit of a painful thing because I had to drag out the old drawing board and start again. <laughs> um, but that sort of was a bit of fun once I got started on the whole thing. But to give you a, just, a, you know, I said earlier that I do a fair bit of research. I had actually accumulated five sets of three view drawings for the Stuka and I only found two, two out of the five that I'd purchased actually matched each other. So I arrived at the best of those two and said, well, that's the one I'm going to, you know, do the fuselage design off. It seemed to match the, the Zeroli wing pretty accurately. Um, and so I sort of thought, okay, here's the starting mark. And so then, you know, once I had that three-view drawing, I drew the, my, the, what I perceived to be the correct fuselage shape and started from there. Um, but uh, what I did do, and this is probably the most, one of the most interesting, well, for me it was anyway, one of the most interesting things is I had to build it with the intention of, of putting it on into boxes to take it halfway around the world at some point in the future, whether I was actually going to do it or not was unknown at that point in time. But um, so the sticker was probably five years in the building process, uh, but there were, it sat, you know, you know, you do a bit of woodwork and then it, it sat in the corner for a year and a bit where I didn't touch it and spent some time on doing the Harvard in the, in the middle of it and et cetera. So, you know, I got diverted a few times and uh, but once I got back to it and got serious, that's about, that sort of was about the time that I'd, uh, uh, after having um, met uh, Greg many years ago and um, 
I knew him or he didn't know me, but I knew him because his name had popped up as a regular Top Gun uh, participant. And at the time I was flying a fishless Porsche uh, that I've built uh, off a plan and um, he looked at that and said, you'll, you'll get in no worries at all. Um, and so that was sort of the beginning of now a, a lifelong friendship. And, um, and uh, you know, I got to, got, uh, he, he made sure my, uh, he made, made or gave me the contacts that I needed to make at the Top Gun uh, end to, uh, to, to then. And that's what everything's spurred on the stick of it. So the whole thing had to be built so the stabiliser can be removed. The rudder comes off, the engine, the cowl and everything came off quite easily. The legs came off the wing and the wing broke into three pieces to fit it all in the boxes, etc. to make the trip. What are some of the dimensions on that plane? What's the wingspan? I um, mean, the old school, uh, you have to excuse me here because I still think in feet and inches when it yeah, comes no, to Yeah, inches is good. I, think in, a... <laughs> I actually think in inches. When it comes to model planes and wingspans, I always yeah. think in inches. Most of the uh, the, the Nixer Rollies and the Jerry Bateses and these guys all built or designed the fifth scale models to be around that 100 inch. So the sticker is, is almost exactly 100 inches in span. Um, and that's pretty, oh, it's 1 to 5.3, I think, is the actual scale. So it's very close to fifth scale. Um, but yeah, it's 100 inches in span. Um, it weighs around just over 33 pounds, about 33 and a half pounds, um, or 16, 16 and a half, 17 kilos. Um, and it's, um, it's traditional balsa plywood, uh, construction, then covered in three quarter ounce glass cloth. Uh, so it's fully sheeted. The wings fully sheeted. The sealage is all fully sheeted. Um, the, uh, the cowl, the, the, some of the interesting things I had to do to this thing is that one, I had to, I had to make, first of all, the wheel pants on the stepper. I had to make them myself, uh, because the ones, the Zeroli ones are, are woefully inaccurate. Um, and these ones had to move. So the bottom of the wheel pant had to telescope up and down into the top part of it to, to accommodate the suspension system, um, in the Olios and the cowling. Um, parts of it, parts of the Zeroli one were accurate and that's about all I can say. So it was actually cut into three separate pieces and then modified in order to make it accurate. If that makes any sense. But uh, yeah, so I took the basics and, and changed it and made it accurate. Um, it's using a, a reasonably unusual engine. Um, um, I bought a, or what popped onto the market at a sort of similar time around then was the Roto engines from the Czech mm -hmm. Republic. Right. And so it's an inline 85cc petrol four-stroke. Uh, and I just, I think I saw it on YouTube or something and I thought, oh, that's it. I've got to have one of those. And so that was a find the money and we can, <laughs> don't look at the expense for too long and, mm. and order it. Um, and yeah, that's is a complete gem that is a most wonderful engine I've ever owned. Um, so it's a beautiful piece of engineering, but also one of the things that, that, and I'll just digress for a second, but one of the things with my scale models is that I am adamant that the engine has got to sound something like an engine. Mm. So um, it's, you know, I, I just find it amazing the number of guys that build a magnificent model engines and then seem to put the cheapest, biggest two stroke in it that they can find. That just you know, bears no resemblance to a full size engine sound. But that's just a personal thing with me. I know for a lot of people, it's all about budget and stuff like that. And I completely understand that. But, um, yeah, I do my best to try and make sure the engine's got some, um, some, uh, 
sense of feeling about it or some some sense of, of um, full size about it, I guess is probably the way. So, yeah, that's that was put in. I'd love to see some um, yeah, different motors being used. Like I'm a big fan of the Colm engines out of yes, Germany yeah. and the sound of those is absolutely phenomenal. Yeah. It's crazy. Sadly, sadly, they're all so expensive. That's yeah, the that's the biggest problem. It does, yeah. you know, you've got to pay extra to get have some of those. Yep. Uh, some of those. I, I recently saw the DLE are doing a quad engine, a quad cylinder, uh, 120cc petrol engine, and that actually sounds not too, too bad. Yep. Um, I saw someone put, well, they tested one in Decathlon or something like that, but, um, yeah. but it's think... all about man. It's all about the manufacturing. So the, you yeah. know, the, the, the bigger two strokes are manufactured because they're easy to make. They're quick, you know, they don't have so many parts in them, et cetera. And mm. that's why the four strokes are so expensive because you've got so many parts in them. And, uh, yeah. The development of the engines is um, is, is really a lengthy process and, and machining and all that sort of stuff. So it just depends on your budget. But if you look at the price of um, you know turbines and stuff like that these days, then um, you know it's it's not you know if if you look at the price of a of a really nice multi-cylinder four-stroke, it's not necessarily any different than buying a small you know a small turbine. That's true. Um, the, what about running gear on in that uh, Stuka? What what servos are you running in the in the model? Um, yeah, I'm 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 not a um, a whiz kid when it comes to servos. Um, I like strength, and uh, yeah, I, I'm using I'm typical of the scale world, and, uh, and I know a lot of the aerobatics guys will uh, poo hoo them, but the uh, the yeah, good old fashioned high tech servos are something that I've um, had for many many years. I've used a variety of them with a great deal of success and very little failures over the years. So you know the the high torque or ultra torque, whatever they call the the six four fives and the newer versions of those, the digital versions of those. Um, I've got in a lot of my airplanes and my my new Wildcats uh, running those. Um, and in the Stuka, I think has got five six four fives in most of it. I think with a couple of smaller ones because it's got two, it's got four flaps and little tiny flaps of got smaller ones. Um, I can't actually remember to be honest what's in there. But, yeah, uh, well, you forget uh, after a while. Once you, once yeah, yeah, in. it's the, you know, the airplane's four four and a bit years old now, so it's um, uh, but it's yeah, it, it's it you know, nothing in there's ever let me down. I did have a, some interesting. Uh, uh, that's one of the things that some people might be interested in. I mentioned the whole stabilizer is removed, um, is removable. The actual elevator servo sits in the lower section of the fin. Um, and the, um, there's also a little a smaller servo that drives the tail wheel only down that end. Oh, really? Mm, so that's, there's a few things. So yeah, I just, they were sort of things that I added during the actual build in order to get rid of push rods and all sorts of things and try and get the control surfaces to work, you know, as I wanted them to. That's good. Um, yeah. And how does it fly? Uh, it's, I remember. I remember online, you know, because I did a building blog on RC Scale Builder for it, and I made, I made a comment at one stage about um, all the effort I was putting into the finish of this thing. I sure hope it flies okay. And uh, one of the guys from the states wrote back, put a put a um, wrote back a, a comment in there, that, and just his quote was that the Zeroli the Zeroli Stuka is the um, is the trainer of all warbirds, and so I didn't fear the aeroplane um, greatly, and and you know, the early flights immediately told me once I'd, I'd got the CG where I was how happy it is. It is a complete pussycat to fly. It really is. It's yeah. one of the most docile flying models, and it um, it does everything really nice. It's um, it, it has no vices whatsoever. It doesn't tip stall. It's um, 
it's quite, you know, it is reasonably, in fact, it's really yeah, quite aerobatic. Um, and it's, you know, it's roll rate, stall turns, yeah, it does everything really nice. Um, so it's, you know, it's a really good aeroplane to fly and it handles crosswinds extremely well, which um, is surprising given, but it has, you know, if you look at the wing of the Stuka, it's got an enormous amount of dihedral in it. Mm. It just looks odd because of the gold, you know, the uh, gold shaped wing. Um, so yeah, it's a, it's a good aeroplane. It flies extremely well. I would actually, I would recommend the design, even if you don't want to modify it, if you were sort of do the builders or older design, I'd highly recommend it to anyone I can guarantee. Because I actually bought a pre-built Zeroli one when I was about two-thirds the way through mine to use as a practice aeroplane. Um, and uh, I flew it, I flew that aeroplane probably 15 or 20 or 30 flights on it maybe and then sold it after I'd uh, finished mine. And it gave me a lot of confidence uh, flying that one gave me and this one was quite heavy and um uh, didn't it was slightly underpowered but only just um, it flew quite well on a uh, on the, it was a, a sing, single cylinder uh, motor in the front of it but it, uh, it flew quite well on it um and uh, so yeah when i had mine finished i didn't fear it at all and i was rewarded because mine was lighter so it floats better etc yes so. you mentioned the top gun event um yep. and it's an event that I've always kept my eye on through some of the US magazines. For for people that don't know what the Top Gun event is in the US, can you give us a bit of information about what, what that, that event is sure. all about? Yeah, I'm like you. I saw it in magazines to start with. Um, and then I had an opportunity, and this is, you mentioned about staying motivated earlier. And one of the one of the things that I found has been a, an enormous motivator for me um, was Top Gun, both seeing those photographs in magazines and being in awe of some of the aeroplanes and just the style of the event, the way that the um, the, the guy that uh, commenced it, you know, what his motivation was and why it all started. But I was very lucky to come across a couple of um, VCR videos back in the early 80s, I think, or late 80s, I can't remember now. Um, I've still got them, but they were on, um, actually, it might have been early 90s. They were they were actually of the first two or three or four Top Gun events in um, in West Palm Beach in Florida on VCRs. And I used to roll these videos in my workshop nonstop. Whenever I was building, I'd just put them on and just sort of listen to the airplane in the background and look up if I wanted to see something one more time. And that was an enormous, and I've actually built up because there was a couple of um, prop wash videos, I think was the name of the company. They went on to produce a DVD every year of the event. And I've got almost a complete collection right through till unfortunately the video business sort of started to die off because of the internet. But I've got a complete collection that I have maybe 15 to 16 DVDs. And I used to just play them nonstop whenever I was building. And that was just, just motivated me. I understood the event. I knew all the names. I knew that faces of a lot of the guys that were regular competitors that I, was, that I saw. And that just when, when I met by accident, I met uh, Greg Tracy down in uh, Sydney at the event in Richmond I went to. And I sort of said, Greg, I know you. <laughs> you know, I'd seen you before. I've heard of you. I've seen you in magazines and I've heard your name many times. And just, you know, our friendship sort of struck up at that point. Um, and it's, it's been strong ever since. And he sort of said, "Yeah, yeah, you know, come, you know, come over. You, I'll get you there. Cause you got to do it, you know." And um, so he he certainly tuned me up on the social side of the event and uh, everything that uh, was added added bonus. But that all is where it all started. The event itself, um, 
that, you know, there's, a, there's an event just to get there, which I'll talk to you about shortly, I guess. But the event itself is just amazing. It is, it is like nothing you've ever seen in Australia. It, it just is. It's so well organised, and it just functions so well. Um, I, when I drove through the gate, I was just like amazed to see all these marquees lined up, which are all pre-organised and. You know, you can uh, you, you pay money to you know get a table in one of the marquees, etc. And it's just like people are there. It's not you know it's not over in a weekend. It lasts for almost for an entire week, um, and it's just a hive of activity. And you know, the year I went in 2018, I was just like you know I was like a kid in the candy shop and just my dragging my jaw around looking at 150 different aeroplanes um, in lots and lots of different categories and just was amazed at the craftsmanship of some of the aeroplanes and the complications of some of them, some of them, and just the willingness of every single person to talk to you. That was just the, mm -hmm. the overwhelming thing. And the hospitality for the Americans was just amazing. It, uh, we were in a tent. Um, there was myself and Greg uh, from Sydney, and we met up with a guy named Gwyn Avenal uh, from New Zealand. Gwyn comes from Auckland, a sensational scale modeler. Um, the three of us were sort of like the South Pacific contingent, and um, we were bunked in with a couple of friends of Greg's that he'd met over the years. They were all from uh, Sarasota, from, from Florida, Florida, and uh, these guys just looked after us. Anything we needed, they'd find it for us. And um, so, because we, you know, you can only take a minimum supply of tools with you and stuff like that. But anything you needed, including, you know, they supplied fuel for us and stuff like that, which we couldn't take over. Um, but they also cooked lunch for us every day. And, you know, it was just wonderful. And, um, not, not to mention cocktail hour at 4.30. Oh, I was going to say, yeah. yeah <laughs> it was just, a good time. It was a really, really good time. Well, the, so, the, the, the U.S. events, they, they do pride themselves on not just the flying, but also the uh, the food and drink that they have yeah. as well. The, yeah. So the Top Gun event, it's a competitive event, isn't it? And it's Very much so, yeah. Yeah, and it's, it's sort of like there's a static judging component as well as a flying component, is there, like a, a normal scale comp? Yeah, yep. so when it comes to, well, the static, of course, they're, they're, they're judging the, the plane on its scale-like comparison, really, I think. But, the, but when it comes to the flying side of things, are you given a sequence that you need to fly to show off the plane or, you know, how does that work, the actual flying yeah. component? Well, no, um, yes and no. You're given, like, like in FAI um, scale competition, there are mandatory manoeuvres that you have to do um, and um, obviously take off and landing is <laughs> two of them. Um, so you haven't got any choice. You've got to do a takeoff. You've got to do a landing, well, hopefully. Um, but you also have to do what's called a, a fast fly past and a slow fly past. And those two manoeuvres, uh, I think, from memory, need to follow each other. Uh, but they can be in the sequence anywhere you like, and then the rest of the manoeuvres are optional. You can so you can choose pretty much whatever you like, as long as you you know you obviously this uh, and taken from a um, from the rule book they have a a, 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 a bunch of manoeuvres that, that you can actually do, which most of which you'll find in in, in any um, scale competition uh, uh, rule book. Um, or you can do something that is completely unique to the aeroplane you. You've built so the whole idea that that Frank Tiano had apparently in the, back in the eighties was to try and make a scale competition where it was okay to take along any aeroplane that you had a passion for. Um, in other words, it, unlike uh, unlike FAI, which is, is tends to 
people tended to build models for K factors, etc., and that's what he wanted to avoid. He wanted to get the guy that wanted to build his Piper Cub, and would it be as competitive as an F-16 jet? If he could build it right and fly it right, yes, it would. So that's the sort of um, the, the background from it. So the flying side of it is is not unlike any other uh, event where there's nine things in the schedule, um, and each one of them is scored literally out of ten. Um, and each manoeuvre, um, they have a Top Gun is. I, I've never been to World Champs or anything, so I'm not trying to say I'm an expert in that area at all, um, and, and I'm certainly not. But it, it's the Top Gun philosophy, or the that this guy started with, is that the the assumption is that everybody is perfect, and just scored down from there. So the assumption by the judges are these guys really do get spoke they have a chief judge and he briefs all the guys about what he expects from them over the weekend and these guys are paid to do the job they're not volunteers so they're paid to sit there in their chairs day after day for five or six days in a row um, and they're, they're the, the standard is expected to be quite high so they assume that every maneuver you do is a 10 until you do something wrong oh, um, but it is very very close scoring and to give you an example, I was in what's called the expert class where you built your aeroplane yourself. You built it either off a plan or from a kit from some description. So you didn't actually design it yourself, you actually built it yourself. So the fact I designed the stupid fuselage didn't cut the mustard because I didn't design the wing. It still is a rolly shaped wing. So I had to go in the expert. I didn't have to, but that's where I was. And I discussed that with the, the event guy before I went to make sure that I did the right thing. Um, and I was more than happy to be in that particular category. But there were 25 competitors, I think it was, in that category. So um, out of that 25, to give you an idea, I was, my scale, my static score out of 100 was 95.975. And that's not good enough. You've got to be in the top. To be in the top, you've got to be at 98 plus yeah. out of 100. And that's how close it is. So if you look down your, in my static score, and I was about mid, well, no, I was probably in the upper midfield area out of the 25. And then in the flying, you know, I, my first flight, I, I can't recall the actual number of them I had, things in front of me here, but um, I got something like 90. 5.25 out of 100 for my first flight score. And I was looking down because they give you a carbonized copy of each of you, of each of the judges' um, scores. And I'm looking down going, wow, you know, I'm seeing like 9 9.75, 9.5, 9.25, 10, 10, 9.75. I'm going, wow, I've never flown that good ever. <laughs> so yeah. I was really, I was beside myself with uh, excitement. But when you see the guys that are really good, and you see 10, 10, 9.75, 10, 9.75, etc. You realise how good and how accurate they fly. Um, but that's okay because at the end of the day, my static score and my flying score um, uh, it gave me, or I came 11th out of the 25 competitors, um, which I was, I was mildly disappointed because I was trying to get to the top 10, but I finished in 11th place. Um, and I was 5.75 points behind, out of 200, 5.75 points behind the winner. So that, you know, there's 10 people in front of me who were within five points yeah, of winning the event out of 200 points. So that's how tight it is. You know what you're going to have to do, Phil? <laughs> you <laughs> no have back. to go back. 
<laughs> Mate, I was, I was, yeah, don't start me because I was going back this year. If it wasn't for COVID, I would have gone back. Um, I actually had my, in fact, I'm, I, uh, I have my ticket booked and I'm still whinging that I'm waiting on my refund. Oh, really? Yeah. See, that's surprising because yeah. normally they process those refunds pretty uh, quickly. I'm with Qantas, I can tell you. I've been waiting for a refund since yeah. the beginning of the year. Now, you told me earlier that uh, there's another project that you've finished now, which is a, a Grumman Wildcat. Yeah, um, the little Wildcat is a Jerry Bates plan, um, and uh, it's it's a pretty cool little airplane, I must admit. I uh, It's one of those lists, Andrew, that, that list in my head that I have, the sticker was very high on the list and it got the way to the top. The Wildcat was not far behind. I purchased um, the engine, the retract system from Robart, the, the uh, plans and the cow, and then eventually a short kit from the uh, laser guys in, uh, in New South Wales. Um, I bought all the gear, so to speak, about six years ago. Um, and yeah, I've been collecting data and stuff on the aeroplane, et cetera, since that date. And so, yeah, it was, um, it was an interesting build. It was, I've never built a little round engine type, um, uh, aeroplane of this nature before. Uh, it's a little shorter wingspan at around 93 inches. I think it is in span. Um, I tried to build it as light as possible and I was very happy to come in at just over 32 pounds. Um, it's got a laser V-twin four-stroke in the front of it, which is a glow motor, but I've converted it to run spark. So I'm still using glow fuel, but running uh, little spark plugs. And uh, it's a, an absolute gem to fly. Um, it really is. It's a lovely aeroplane. Um, it just does everything. You know, it's got a nice, really, well, it's a fighter, so it's supposed to do just about everything. Um, but it, um, you know, it just does everything really nicely. It's a great little flyer. Had a lot of battle with it in the first um, a couple of guys that have seen me fly it in the first couple of flights will, will attest to the fact that it was a little bit of a handful. And that all came from a, a forward CG, which was too far forward on the plan. Um, in my anyway, it was my opinion, and I began to take weight out, hoping I was doing the right thing. And it just got better and better. And so I've actually moved the center of gravity back about 30 millimeters um, from its stated position on the plan, and it absolutely turned the aeroplane from, as, as uh, I've coined the phrase, turned it from a wildcat into a pussycat. <laughs> it um, it really is now, it floats in over the fence for landing. It doesn't have any nasty tendencies of tip stalling or anything like that. And it just lands with, you know, at, at, a, at a good speed that you expect for an aeroplane of this size rather than coming in like a bullet over the fence all the time. Um, yeah, it's been a great one. And so, you know, I actually made contact with, so I knew Jerry Bates was following the build. Um, on the uh, on RC Scale Builder, and I uh, I knew he was following along, so I sent him an email, and um, and uh, I just said, Jerry, I just found, you know, I moved the CG back, and this is what I found, and he was really grateful. He wrote back almost immediately, and was grateful for the feedback, and said he'll modify the plans immediately and show a broader range. <laughs> so, you know, yeah, which is cool. So, yeah, it's a great little plan. Um, and yeah, my passion at the moment, and it started with the Stuka, but it's now sort of got, got even further now with the Wildcat is to, uh, I've really got this thing of realism. I'm really trying to get the aeroplane to look as close so that it looks like a real aeroplane sitting on a miniature aeroplane rather than sitting looking like a model aeroplane. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's, uh, I really enjoyed the uh, weathering process and all that sort of thing of this one particular. Yeah. Now, the other area that, you've you don't mind is gliding and i noticed in doing some research again that 
you'd, you'd been involved in some glider competitions, you know, many, many years ago. What, what has been your gliding activity and what does it look like now? Um, it, it started right back in the early days uh, when I was uh, you know, drawing plans out of, uh, out of magazines. Um, I built um, two channel type gliders that were published in, uh, in plans in magazines and uh, built a number of those different ones. Um, and then in the earliest, early days, the uh, Armadale Sailplane Expo started up um, in the 80s right. uh, up in Armadale, and which is about a four and a half hour drive up onto the tablelands from where I live. And um, we knew it had started. We didn't go to the first one, but I went to the second one. And um, I took a, um, in those days, um, a bird of time, a two-channel bird of time, which was a pretty, pretty uh, hot glider in its day. And I came third the very first, first, uh, first time I went up there in the event, and I was just hooked at that point in time. So yeah, F3, what, what was the beginning of what we call F3J now? And unfortunately, that's sort of now out of very much out of favour these days. Um, but F3J flying, and I pretty much went to almost every single expo over the thirty-something years, and uh, and I've pulled away from it as time has gone on in the latter in the last, recent few last few years. Um, it simply F5J started to take over, and that was an aspect of the hobby that I just, I don't know, I just didn't really have the desire to get into it. I'd flown so much thermal stuff over the years. So also in the meantime, became quite hooked on um, aero towing and scale stuff. So um, I've got through two vintage scale gliders and, uh, and one um, uh, glass, a DG1000 um, glass glider, which is a, uh, it's my pride, one of my pride and joys. Well, I've seen some videos of that. Yeah, there's some videos a, around on, on YouTube of the, that yep. DG1000 flying and about. Yeah. yeah, it's a phenomenal model. It's yeah, it's a beautiful about, thing. Yeah. Something about those it's, star gliders. It's got a bit of age on it now. It's five, six, five, six years old now. But man, I've um, I've flown it hard. I've tried, I've tried to break it and didn't, which is good. So. Well, if you want to, th if yeah. you're throwing it out, I'll take it off your hand. Yeah, yeah, no, no, it's, it'll, it'll, I'll, I'll keep it forever. Yeah. Again, unfortunately, I bought that at a time that the exchange rate was reasonable, and mm. reasonably priced. Um, but now to replace it is a huge oh, amount expensive. of money. Just, yeah. just getting them out here these days has become really, really expensive. We're just going to have well. to wait for uh, that exchange rate to turn and then jump. Mm. The, well, there's something that you've, you've raised a few, a few times in this discussion that is about the bucket list and, you know, <laughs> that list. Yeah. And, and I've actually had a question, you know, well, already pre-planned about that. You know, what planes are still on your bucket list to build? Uh, there's a few. That's uh, yeah, one of my greatest fears in life is not living long enough to, uh, to finish the list. But um, one of the things that I haven't done, which is it's, it's coming along uh, very shortly, I've never built a twin engine um, model, and uh, so I do have a passion to do that. And I've had all of the, the one of the most beautiful sets of plans I've ever seen in my life of the um, Night Pen 37 Dragon Rapide, uh, which, if you're not familiar, is a, is a twin engined um, uh, biplane of the, in the 1930s, so a, a, light, a light transport aircraft, which was popular in the United Kingdom. So to have it on the aircraft and um, two two engines on it that look like the front noses of a uh, Tiger Moth and um, a pretty uh, a pretty aeroplane to look at. So I've got the plans, the cowls and everything to do a six scale model around around 96 inches. And um, yeah, that's likely to be next. And um, the other one I've got a bit of a passion for, 
Well, the two others, the other one that I've again got all the gear for is the um, Beach Beach 18, which is the um, twin engine light uh, transport type aeroplane, American design. I've got the, uh, again, it's a Zeroli plan. I've got the cows and all the bits and pieces there, undercarriage that goes with it. So, um, yeah, that's, I've got that one after that. And then one day, I, if I make it, I'll, I'd love to have a go at designing and actually building a, um, a um, Mark I Bristol, uh, Bristol Blenheim, which is an unusual looking, uh, light, again, a light British bomber from World War II with a funny looking nose on it with a whole glass house front on it. Um, yeah, which is a, yeah, anyway, they're just, I like them, other people don't. So it's just, uh, that's what no, it is. As we said, it, it, we need people that are producing some different models so that when we turn yeah. to the flying events, we're seeing something different. And, and they're the models yeah. that really stand out when you think about it. Yeah. Are you, in a normal year, take out 2020, in a normal year, you get mm. into many events? Um, yeah, I, I have tried to get around a bit. Um, I, I must admit, I really, I do miss going places. I reckon that's the place you learn stuff. Um, and I'll just give you a simple example. I just went and flew at Tingalpa Club in Brisbane on Sunday morning last week when I was on my way back from my daughter's place. And um, I met a couple of guys there and we're just in a conversation. I was flying the Wildcat and um, we started talking about fuel tanks. And But one of the guys there um, I just mentioned that in his glow motors, he's you know, running a separate uh, fill line in with a clunk on it and a clunk to uh, So in other words, there's two clunks inside the tank and two fuel lines, one to fill through and the other one drove directly to the engine. And um, I said, yeah, yeah, I've done all of that as well. He said, oh, he said, um, yeah, number one of the things I come up with was to solder the two clunks together so they can't ever get bound up. And I thought, wow, what a great idea. <laughs> yeah, no, I mean, that's just, to me, that's what going away is all about. It's simple little ideas that you think, man, I would have never thought of that. It's, um, it's a true. clever idea, yeah, a clever idea that won't tangle makes the clunk twice as heavy, so it's going to move around in the tank a lot easier, et cetera, et cetera. So all of those sorts of things is, is why you go away. And yeah, and just to see new and different things. Um, um, I got away last year to down to the to um, the one at Maitland where, um, where Goffey and those guys fly. Uh, that was a fabulous weekend away. Um, I took the snooker down to that and I had a great time. Um, so yeah, I like to get, I've been there to Canberra a couple of times. Um, I like to get away um, if I can, but uh, Brisbane's probably the easy one for me, and there's three or four great clubs up there that uh, hold events, but um, sadly, no one seems to want to um, compete any longer, um, and so competitions are a rarity, and, yeah. uh, and or they're a long way away for me, and you know, to go to, you know, for me to drive to places like um, uh, Newcastle isn't so bad, you know, it's, it's about... It's about seven hours away, six and a half, seven hours. But to go to Canberra and places like that, it's literally a 12-hour drive. Yeah, we've got a, a um, relatively good scale scene down here in Victoria, but um, yeah. but still there's not great, great numbers. But um, some of the events are pretty good. The, the Mammoth, the Shepherd and Mammoth event is always a good event down here. Yeah, very much on my bucket list too. I'd love yeah, to come, to come down to that one. But it's, you know, it's, again, I've got to make sure that, you know, we've got some other kind of holiday going at the time. So yeah, it's a bit I might, of an effort. I might, yeah, I might. Uh, you need get to you to Line me up. Well, I'm, if I'm going to tow a trailer then and then go and do a holiday somewhere, I'll need uh, I'll need you to tee up somewhere to leave the trailer for me. Yeah, so no. I can come back and pick it up on the way back. Well, there's a uh, there's a uh, 
plenty of people that will help out. Don't worry, Phil. Just give me a call. Yeah, I'm sure. We'll hook you up with a few people. Uh, now, f- this is the, the signature question that I ask everybody. Um, and I, I did give you a bit of a hint, so you should know what this question is. But this is a question that relates to what has been your favourite model of all time? Um, yeah, I did forget what you told me about that. Um, I'd have to say <laughs> this. I actually have a couple. I think I'd have to say a couple. I I put my heart and soul into a um, uh, uh, a Fokker D5A. Um, sorry, an Albatross. Not a Fokker. My apologies. An Albatross D5A. A couple of years ago, or a few, you know, eight, nine years ago now. Um, and that was a lovely aeroplane, um, which I hope still exists somewhere. I've been through several sets of hands. I really loved that aeroplane. That was the first really serious scale model I'd put my heart and soul into. Um, and uh, that has, has its, you know, little section of trophies in the cabinet sort of thing from that one. Um, the Stuka definitely is from an all round, easy flying, great looking, head turning kind of scale model. Um, it's definitely uh, right up there on the list, and I think most people would say that the current one, so the, you know, the Wildcat is also pretty cool now. I, I really, really like this little aeroplane. It's um, uh, yeah, the unusual undercarriage has never failed me yet. Touch wood, um, and you know, the engine's brilliant combination, and etc. So it's a good-looking little aeroplane in the air, and you know, so I. I'd probably summarise by saying whatever I'm recently <laughs> recently built is probably right there. You know, they're all favourites. In fact, it's hard. I find it really difficult to sell them. Um, they, you know, particularly you know, I've still got up in my roof my faceless door shot, which I've spent many years building, um, and I just sort of can't part with it. <laughs> oh, I think when you've put that much effort to build a, a plane like that, getting rid of them is a much bigger deal than, you know buying an ARF that you put together and flew around a whole bunch of times and just want to move on. But I could definitely understand. Like this, I was talking to my brother the other day and um, the first radio control plane that I, I flew was a, a scratch-built one-metre wingspan stick, electric, that yeah. a friend of yep. mine had. And he, he basically said, oh, we'll see how you fly. And he handed the transmitter over to me because I'd been learnt on a simulator, basically. And I was fine. I took off and landed first flight. And... Uh, that model I ended up buying it and then my brother bought it off me and I and he's not really flying that much nowadays and I said to him have you still got that stick and he said yep I said I'm gonna buy it back off you because that it's it's like this part of history it was the first plane I flew and it we've yep. still got it and it's still just as good and I'm still happy to go and have a muck around with it just because it was the first plane that I flew and it's just it's a one meter it, it's actually a really good flying plane the guy that built it is a legend the way he built the thing but um you know, it's that's my connection to it. Even though I've got much better planes to fly, that is still a special plane, I think, for me. So, um, and you know, it's, so and a lot of people say the same thing when I ask that question. It's not just about the way the plane models; it's what that plane means or what that plane allowed them to do. Like in your case, the the Stuka allowed you to go to Top Gun to to gain another experience. And a lot of the guys that have competed in the, the world champs level say the same thing. You know, this plane's my favorite yeah. because of where it took me. And I can relate yeah, to that as well. Exactly. I mean, you know, you, can't, you when you go to these events, again, you learn so much from other people. But it it only takes that one or two comments that you get. And I, I still I've never the, the most exciting moment over there 
um, was um, the, the craftsmanship judge when he models on the static table. A guy named Richard Irovich is the uh, is the static judge, and he literally can walk right up to the airplane and look all over it, underneath it, etc., look in the cockpit, uh, etc. So he can get as he can't touch it, but he can get as close as literally putting his nose right up to it. And he just, you know, he did his thing and did his score sheet and he stepped back from it and he just said, that's the best Duger I've ever seen. And I think, and that was sort of like a really, oh my God, you know, moment for me. And, and really, you know, I was, I, you know, I was as proud as punch. I really thought that was, that sort of made it for me. Um, it was worth, it was worth all the getting there and all the problems getting through airports and stuff like that, that, uh, that I sort of uh, had to, had to go through. But it's, um, yeah, I, I would. Well, I, I was. I was going to go back and do it again, um, but uh, unfortunately, the COVID thing <laughs> struck. So. Ah, yeah. Uh, maybe yeah. next year we'll see. Yeah. You know, if we if we're in the clear by next year, if not, I, I reckon the year after potentially we'll be back on with. Um, yeah, with I hope so. Passion. I really do, and and I do, and I hope so for 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 you know all the younger guys, so Goffy and those sort of guys. And I mean, I'm not that old yet, but I've still got plenty of years left. I still got a few years yet. Um, use that to, uh, to have a go again but um whether i yeah i don't know i'm sort of starting to think about i, I do have one other airplane in my uh, in my uh, list which um that i might think about and trying to do my own design for and that's the theory very firefly is uh just one of those odd looking airplanes that i've always liked and um, it'd be again a unique one which no one else would have over there um, but again, then that you know, make it in such a way that it will break down into pieces, so you can pack it away. Yeah, that's what. Well, you know what? I suppose what COVID's done is buy you some time to build that plane mm. out, and so now you can start work on it. Yeah, yeah. well, I'm that, retired, so it doesn't matter. COVID hasn't really affected. Me oh, really. yeah, I know. But well, it's affected. You can't go to Top Gun, so yeah, you know, you, yeah. You start true. building the model and uh, and get over there. Well, Phil, it's been it's been a pleasure having a chat with you. I really enjoyed it, uh, and uh, you know well done with all the projects that you've built and and as i said it's always good to talk to people that are building something different and and at an elite level as well because I, I i think that a lot of the guys like yourself don't really realize the impact that you make on other people and how you motivate other people and so telling the story about these planes really helps the hobby um you know that's what i'd love to do when i had the flat out rc magazine is really showcase people's planes because that would motivate others to want to maybe build something or modify something or do whatever and continue down their journey in aero modeling and which I think is always good. So a big thank you to you and uh, thank you. all the best in the future and hope that, hope you get back to Top Gun. And if you do, we'll have to have you back on so we can have a chat about uh, your next Top Gun uh, excursion. Yeah. <laughs> Careful what you wish for. Thanks. <laughs> I appreciate you having me on. Thank you. Thanks, Phil. About to leave. Already packing, come with me. I'm not really asking. We'll get away to a place where we don't know. Well, that's it. Another episode done and dusted. Flat out RC is going strong. A big thank you to Phil Crandon. I really enjoyed the chat. I really, really enjoy having different people from different facets of the hobby come and have a chat with me you know anything from scale to gliders to helis uh i've got, I've got uh, a drone guest lined up that's going to happen in the near future uh anything rc i enjoy having a chat about and when i mean i enjoy i really do enjoy having a chat and, and learning about people i'd never met phil before but uh enjoyed learning more about his his journey in the hobby now if i approach you to be a guest 
There's some people who say, oh, I'm not very exciting, I've got nothing to tell. My attitude is that everybody's got a story to tell about uh, their aero modeling. It doesn't matter whether you've been it for three years or 300 years, it doesn't matter. There is a story to tell and that's why I like bringing to you stories of the known modelers and also some of the unknowns. And now you know a bit more about Phil Crandon. So a big thanks to Phil for, for giving us that opportunity by telling us his story. Now stay tuned. We're heading towards Christmas. Probably oh, one more episode, maybe, or maybe a couple. Uh, we'll see. We'll see how we go. But uh, stay tuned for next week. Don't forget to subscribe to this podcast. Don't forget to subscribe to the Flat Out RC Instagram, Facebook, and YouTube channel. More videos coming in the new year. So stay tuned. Uh, nothing more to say except a big thank you for joining me here on the Flat Out RC podcast. And stay tuned. Plenty more to come. We'll be back next week. Thanks a lot.